probably good that they're better at this than I am. But I was thinking how, um, did you play games as a kid? Pretty much all of us did at some level. We played a game of some kind. Uh, there are all kinds of games. Like most, the most common kid game is tag, right? Race after people. Um, you probably all liked tag at one point in your life, unless you were really slow. And then you didn't like tag because you were always it. But, but everyone liked tag. As long as you were faster than the person next to you, tag was great, right? Um, but we played all kinds of other games, kickball, dodgeball. If you're really old, you played kick the can, which I don't even know what that is, but I know it's an old person game. Um, sorry. Um, kind of. Just a little. Um, but, but we played rock, paper, scissors, right? We played all kinds of games. But there was another game we played as a kid. I mean, maybe you played Simon Says. But we all, many of us, I won't say all, because maybe there's some person here who never played this game, which you're the only person I know that hasn't, but we've all played the game Follow the Leader. Played Follow the Leader at some point in your life. Follow the Leader is a fascinating game because you literally follow someone and what they're doing, um, and you just emulate it. So I was thinking about this. when I, I used to teach tennis full-time, and one of the things that we did was um, we'd start each hour with a new like warm-up game, and often we'd do some form of Follow the Leader. Why? Because um, it wasted time, and it was easy, and the kids would do whatever you wanted them to do. So we played follow the leader. Now, if you're smart here, we're smart enough in this room to realize following someone blindly probably is a bad idea. It could end poorly. But here's the reality for all of us in this room. Um, I could talk about human systems and how to get into all kinds of in-depth things, but all of us follow someone. All of us do. We could, we could talk about the hows and whys and argue, and, and that's fine, but we don't need to. We can just do this. All of us follow someone. The question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And who, who are you following? Who are you emulating? Who are you trying to live and look like, right? And so that's the question. Do you know them well, or do you only know them at a distance? Are there parts of that person's life you're following that you go, I like all of them except for this or this thing. Like, if they got rid of that, I would follow them more closely, right? Are there parts that you don't want to emulate? And maybe if I flip it for a second, here's the question I'll ask. Are you comfortable with someone following you? Are you comfortable being someone someone else follows? I mean, maybe if I talked about, like, diet or exercise or reading or work ethic, uh, you'd be like, yeah, you could, someone could follow me in those areas, but what if I said, hey, what if someone followed you in regards to your faith? Are you comfortable then? If someone followed your faith, would that be a good thing or a bad thing for them? See, this is the crazy thing, because all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, Jesus says these words again and again and again, follow me. It's a simple phrase, over and over again, follow me. In fact, by definition, a Christian is a disciple of Jesus, and to summarize what disciple means, it just means this, to follow someone closely. You with me so far, right? Um, So here's Jesus' invitation for all of us is to follow him. Sounds simple, right? We're probably on the same page there, okay, be a Christian, follow Jesus, I'm with you, get it. What's that marked by? Well, that's a, mark, a life marked by selflessness and sacrifice. Okay, I, 
understand that. I'm not sure I'm with you as much there. And so the season of Lent is marked by this. We, we mark by our willingness to sacrifice and be selfless and learn to live this, we call it the cruciform life. We're going to falter Christ on the cross, and we're going to try to follow him more closely. And so we reflect on the areas of our life during the season where maybe we're not following as closely as we'd like. Maybe we're not living and loving like Jesus. And so we say, okay, I, I want to do this. I'm going to lay these things down. Um, but here's the crazy thing for us. Would you be willing to say, would I be willing to say, follow me as I follow Jesus? Waiting. You don't have to answer that out loud because I know we're like, ooh, do I have to answer that out loud? Is that like a rhetorical question or an actual question? Great question. Um, but this is not just a question. This is literally what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. We're going to be looking at Philippians 3, uh, 17 to verse 4, or chapter verse 1 of chapter 4 in just a few moments, but, but Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. And Philippi, it's important to know, is a, a colony of Rome. And Philippi is located in Greece, so it's not in Italy where, where Rome's located, right? It's, it's a place far away from Rome, and yet the people in Philippi are called to be citizens of Rome. They're called to live as if they are Roman. In fact, um, it was mostly colonized by, like the people who began to live there were former Roman soldiers, Mark Anthony and Octavius, um, had been a battle there, and so as a like reward, they left them there because they didn't want to take them to Rome. They didn't have enough jobs or places, and so they gave them this place and said, "You call this home. This is your. This is the spoils of war for you." So, what do you do in those places? You bring the language and the architecture and and all these things of Rome to Philippi, and so Paul is writing to this place. Uh, Paul is writing as he's in prison, and he's writing with Timothy. And so Paul and Timothy together write this letter um, to the church in Philippi. And he writes for a very particular thing. He writes about these contrasting things, suffering and joy, over and over again, contrasting back and forth. But what he wants them to know, I mean, remember, I just said he's writing from prison, right? But he wants them to understand that we're called to live from a place of joy, regardless of our circumstances. And like, easy for him to say, well, he's actually literally in prison, so... Is he can, if he can say it, you and I probably can too. Um, and this is what Paul's writing to them. And he's reminding them, hey, don't forget you are citizens of another place, right? Hint, this is going to kind of important phrase for Paul. Uh, you're a citizen of somewhere else. In other words, the people in Philippi would have understood this. Many of them were citizens of Rome, but lived in another place. And so here's what Paul writes. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now, tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. 
Nepal begins with these words, join together. Unmistakably talking about unity, but what are we called to join together in? We're called to join together in following. And then um, what Paul says next honestly takes me back. Like, I, I go, hmm, um, I don't know if I like these words. In fact, someone go, well, Paul sounds kind of arrogant, maybe, but maybe not. I, I don't know. I wrestle with this. I mean, Paul says, did you catch what he said? I'm just going to say it again. In fact, several biblical translators throughout the centuries have tried to finesse these words and make them different because it's such a, an audacious thing that Paul says. He says this, follow my example. Notice he doesn't even say follow Jesus, but he says, if you'll follow me, you will follow Jesus. I'm like, oh, really? You want me to follow you? Because you're following Jesus so closely that if I follow you, I'll be following Jesus. Oh, can you say that? And not only does he say that, he then says this, but not just me, but the others who are like me. Right? So you're going to look, we, as we follow Jesus, like meaning, okay, him and Timothy? But he's like, wait, there are others beyond us who follow Jesus so closely that you can emulate them. Right, so Jesus says, follow me, and Paul says, follow me, because I'm following Jesus so closely, you'll then follow him by following me. I gotta be honest with you, I get stuck here all the time, and I can't really leave this spot, because I'm like, man, could I ever say to someone, if you will follow me, you will follow Jesus? Live as he lives. I mean, Paul's living in such a way He's saying, hey, I am confident in not only who Jesus is, but I'm confident he has so radically changed who I am that if you will follow me, you will follow him. All right, um, so I have a really good dad. I mean, he's a great guy. He loves Jesus. He serves the church. I have nothing but great things to say about my dad. But one of the things we would always joke about as kids is my dad would occasionally do stuff that was being, like, not great. I mean, not necessarily sinful, just stuff you'd go probably shouldn't do that or probably don't want to do that. I mean, we've all probably done those kind of things. And, and then he, we would do what every child of their parent does, right? We'd go, we'd call him out on it. <laughs> hey, Dad, thought we were supposed to do that, whatever it was, right? And he'd go, well, you know, do as I say, not as I do, right? Um, he'll probably listen to this later, so I don't, I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. And we would kind of laugh about that. And I get it as a parent because, like, at least it one knowledge at one level, it acknowledges there's some things we probably shouldn't be doing. That's, that's a good thing, right, as a parent. That's a, we want our kids not to do certain things. Um, but the more effective parenting tactic is to just not do it to begin with. Right, I mean, it was never, like, anything awful. I just want to be clear. I, like I said, I have a great dad. But he would use that phrase, and I'd go, Dad, do you think that's helpful? Do you think that phrase works, do as I say, not as I do? Or do you think we're more likely to do what you did and not what you just said? He's like, well, you know, uh, you know. anyway, like every, every dad I've ever met has used that phrase at some level, in some way, shape, or form, right? We've all probably done it. But I laugh about that story because uh, do as I say, not as I do is a phrase that we often think of in terms of faith. In other words, my faith says I believe these things, um, but I'm not going to do them, right? We see this in the workplace, not just at home, right? We have a boss who says, do this, and yet they're never, they would never do it. We're all going to sacrifice in this, but they're not. I mean, like, whatever the phrase might be, we, we all hear these kind of phrases. In other words, they're words that don't line up with actions. 
And what Paul is trying to get across is, hey, listen, what might happen if people who follow Jesus, their words and their actions lined up? What if they weren't empty promises? What if who we said we were trying to be, we actually were? In other words, Paul is saying this, listen, I'm not only going to talk the talk, but I'm going to walk the walk. So why is Paul making such a big deal about this? Because not unlike today, people would often twist the words of Jesus to fit the narrative that they wanted to see the world. I mean, just this week, I was having a conversation with a couple guys around a cup of coffee, and, and we're talking about um, kind of upbringings, and, and um, one's a little older than me, one's much older than me, and, and we're just talking about life and faith and growing up in the church, and one of them said, man, the tradition I grew up in, I've had to relearn theology and understanding who God is because I was brought up under this premise that um, God's people with money were only blessed by God, and then if you didn't have money, you just weren't faithful enough. And this was the premise. He said, this is what I grew up in. And, and it was kind of like, that, that, well, God just, you're just not faithful enough or God would give you more money. And, and, um, and he said, I met a really wealthy guy who would talk about this. And, and I said, well, that's, honestly, that's just really dumb. Super dumb. We don't say stupid, so I won't say that in our house, but we, that's stupid. That's not, that's not how God works. I said, if that's true, why do like, corrupt criminals have lots of money? Like, that's just not how God works. But that theology was so ingrained in their way of thinking that the only way you could be blessed was if you got more money. And so we call that now, today, we, we define that as prosperity gospel. Like it's, it's like an incomplete gospel. It's not quite the good news of Jesus. There's some good in it. Like God often blesses us. God, we believe God blesses us. That may include money at times, but often what he does is he reshapes our minds so we think more clearly, we make wiser decisions, which in the end may equate to becoming better employees and making more money. That's possible. But it's nowhere in the scripture that he's going to give you more money. But he's going to bless you. And so if we twist the truth of God blessing you to being blessing equals money, then that's how we end up with a bad theology. But here's what Paul does say. He says, for, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears. So I'll stop for a second. Paul writes like with a pastor's heart who loves these people. He's like, ah. I'm writing you from prison. These words matter to me because I want you so desperately to know the God that I know. And here's what he says. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So what's Paul talking about? There was a kind of a a doctrinal issue in their, in their day, right? This, this thing they believe, people believe that was wrongly. It's called Gnosticism, and you're like, I don't know what that is, I don't really care. Well, here, let me describe it for you because it'll make some more sense. But this Gnostic view began to take shape in the early church, and in fact, I would argue it in some levels it still exists today, and so let's describe what it is. So there was this idea that spirit was good, like, so what our, our spirit did was good. So we could be connected to God spiritually, and our physical bodies could do anything we wanted to do because those two did not connect. In other words, we were disembodied, spirit and body, separate things. So I could believe in Jesus as the resurrected Lord who's going to save me, and I could live however I wanted to live because my body could do things that my spirit was not connected to. But we, we come to believe that's a, it's a really kind of Greek, Hellenistic view of the body and soul. Um, as a 
Jew, which Jesus would have been, as would Paul, they would have seen like body and soul are connected. And so when we say soul, we, we mean like whole being, not like spirit. Okay, that's important in this. In other words, the early church, what they were fighting was these things, right? Um, gluttony, he means literal gluttony, like people eating too much, like your stomach, but also um, sexual appetite, drunkenness, right? You can live out these kind of behaviors, and it doesn't matter because God is good with you. In fact, I would say this way. I, I was listening to a young person not long ago say, uh, I shouldn't even use young person because I've heard old people say the same thing, um, well, you can do whatever you want to do because we, we serve a forgiving God. That's Gnosticism. That, that what we do is not connected to our behavior. Like, those are disconnected things. That's not who God is. It's not what Jesus invites us to when Paul begins to write, hey, listen, we, we believe that if you, if you live into these ways, if you keep falling in these directions, these are going to separate you from who God is, and you're going to no longer live as someone who can say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. And he uses this phrase that if we hear it wrongly, we go, oh, he says, their minds are set on earthly things. Now, some of us hear that and go, well, that means like eating and drinking and sleeping and all those things are bad and work is bad. Wrong. It's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's saying is this, if we're not careful, the priorities of our life, the things we focus on, those things can be twisted to where they're the wrong thing. I don't know if you know this, but go read the life of Jesus. He went to a lot of parties. He ate a lot. He hung out with people a lot. He built relationships. Those are actually all really good things. The problem was his priority was never his stomach. He never lived for the weekend. I'm proud of you all for coming to church today, springing forward. Some of you watch later in the week. It's because you're sleeping right now. Uh, by the way, next year we've decided we're not going to spring forward on Sunday morning. Please remind me of this, like six weeks out. We're just going to meet at 11.30. You'll feel like it's 10.30. You'll thank me later. You can take a nap, make it up another day. Um, but what, what Paul wants people to know is these earthly matters are not these things, but I would say it this way. Jesus' singular ambition was to show people what God's new creation looked like. To live as a reflection of God's new creation. To live and to love as a reflection of the Father. That is what it means to live as Christ calls us. And to live a counter to that would be to live seeking after earthly things. In other words, their lives were all about the things of this life and not the things that God invites us into. And so maybe I should say it this way. Enemies of Christ do not take up their cross, die to themselves, and follow Jesus. We talked before, like, the season of Lent is about the cruciform pattern of Christ. He's willing to lay certain things down. For some of us, we might need to pick some things up, but, but he's willing to change aspects. Right? We're called to change aspects of our life so that we become a reflection of Christ in the world in which we live. So we look and sound more like Jesus. Why? Because this is what Paul says next. Why? But our citizenship is in heaven. So what does Paul mean by that, right? That we're like to live in some place way out there? No, that's not what he's trying to say. Because in fact, um, we're going to talk about we're, we're talking about Philippi, Roman colony located in Greece, not near Rome. With me there, right? That's important to know. Um, at the end of a battle, Octavius and Mark Anthony 
gave them this place and said, call it home, bring your culture, your thought, your architecture, your language, bring all those things here and be citizens of Rome in this other place. Okay? Now, what does Jesus say when he comes? You can flip back there in your Bible, come up, but he says the kingdom of God is here, or the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near, and what is the kingdom of God? Him. He keeps saying these phrases over and over again. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. In other words, we're called to be reflections of Jesus in this life. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. It means to bring, right, he actually prays a prayer, invites us to pray, where it has a line on earth as it is in heaven. Not, I got to leave here so I can get it right. No, no, bring it here and now. So how would I say this differently? Um, the church is called to be a colony of heaven. Just like Philippi was called to be a colony of Rome, the church is called to be a colony of heaven here and now. You and I are invited into life in such a way we would live as people who are reflections of God's divine image, reflections of his son at our home, at our work, at our school, wherever we may go. The kingdom of God is here. Yeah. So let's say it this way. Followers of Jesus should live lives that match their citizenship. Um, so years ago, there were a couple guys named Stanley Howell and William Willimon. It's been like I don't know, 25, 30 years ago now. They wrote a book called Resident Aliens. Um, good book. I'd encourage you to read it if you're ever interested. But, but the point, the whole premise of the entire book, right, I'm giving you a spoiler here, um, is that Christians are called to live as resident aliens. I can't remember which one of it was, talked about early on, and it was like the 1960s, and they remember their little small town in South Carolina offered a movie on Sunday night. Um, for the first time, the movie theater opened on Sunday. Right, it was a big deal to him as a kid. And, and um, he talked about that because that's when he realized, that's the first time it clicked in his mind that maybe Christians are called to are really our resident aliens, that there's no place that they call home in terms of the world in which we live, but, but like it clicked, oh wait, um, no government exists for the goodness of the kingdom of God. Like it just clicked as a, as a young guy, right? But this is the reality. We're called to live as resident aliens, citizens of heaven in the world in which we live, to seek Jesus first and make him Lord of everything in our life, wherever we are. What might happen if we did that? What might the world look like if we embrace that as true? What might be the characteristics of our everyday life? What might people begin to say about us? How would we be described? What would be the heartbeat of who we are? Can you imagine just for a moment if we truly lived as resident aliens, citizens of heaven on earth? It's literally Jesus' prayer for us on earth as it is in heaven. What might that look like? Well, I, I, think, I think we would look at the words of the fruit of the Spirit. We would be defined by love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now, I, I want to say something. It might offend some of you. That's okay. Uh, you should probably be offended if this offends you. If those don't describe your behavior on social media... 
you're probably not following Jesus. If, <laughs> if that doesn't describe how our family and friends begin to speak about us, then we're probably not following Jesus. Citizens of heaven invite us into a way of life in which we sacrifice, we live selflessly, we lay certain things down because we recognize at the end of the day, the most important thing in our life is for people to know the fullness of the love of God seen in his son, and we're called to reflect it. And that's hard. I think Matt and I were talking this weekend about... um, just faith or whatever, and I said, yeah, like, Christianity is actually pretty simple. It's follow Jesus. But that's where the simple stops. It gets really hard after that. The concept of being a follower of Jesus, incredibly simple. Will you trust the one who lived and died and rose again so you can find new life? Or will you say, well, you know, I, Jesus, I mostly think what you did is accurate. I, I believe in you. I may even experience something with you. But you're wanting me to lay down everything in my life and trust it all to you? You want my priorities to be your priorities? You want me to be defined by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? His answer is unequivocally yes. Yes. And that, that just might change the world. And I can guarantee you this, it'll for sure change your home. It'll begin to change your office. It will change the places in which you have influence. And so you ask, what would it take to change the world? Probably you and me. And embracing these things is true regardless of what happens around us. And why is this what Paul says? Because there will be a day when the resurrected Lord resurrects us and whatever is broken in our life is restored and made new. And so what he says this, he says, I love you. I'll be honest with you, I am scared to death to say to you, follow me as I follow Jesus. Scares me to death. But I will say this, I love you. And Paul's words to the church, stand firm, are the words that I have for you as well. Stand firm and trust that he is the one who invites us to know him. Make that the priority of our life. So the question for you and I is this, what is the priority of your life? Not just what is the stated priority of your life, because that's what Paul talks about, right? We can say, this is the most important thing in my life. But yet when we begin to look at the activity of our life, right? It's then do as I say, not as I do. What is the priority of your life? What is it you and I put first? What is it that matters the most? And then the question becomes this, are we modeling a life of eternal significance? And you go, well, it doesn't work in the world we live in today. You're right, it doesn't. Flat out, I'll agree with you. If you embrace love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control, if you embrace those as first, you may not get ahead in life. I'll tell you that right now. You don't believe me? 11 and 12 apostles were murdered. Paul was in prison, eventually beheaded. Yep. It may not work out in the way the world works, but here's what I will promise you. 
you won't regret it. At the end of your life, when your family looks back and says, man, you remember how dad, or you remember how mom, or you remember how cousin Billy, or cousin Susie, or whatever your name is, right? Do you, do you remember how they just had something uniquely different about them? Remember how they were just generous with their money and their time? Do you remember how they were just, they didn't get angry, they didn't yell at us? <laughs> we definitely earned it. Do you remember how they just were defined by characteristics that were so different? Do you remember, do you remember them? I told this story this morning, it's not in my notes, and I didn't plan on t- telling it, but I, I um, was mentioning someone before the service, we were talking about prayer and answering prayer and, and God at work, and, and I talked about how one of the struggles in my life has always been, um, I told many of you this story before, and you've heard it, but, but my son had a, uh, we, grew up, we went to church when our kid was born, there was another little boy that was eight days younger than Isaac, and um, his parents had to bury him at like the age of nine. And yet, Becca, the mom, wrote a book called You Can't Steal My Joy. I don't know if I could write the book and mean it, but she did. What does it look like to be so shaped by the good news of Jesus that the depth of God's love can be known, that you can experience the goodness of his salvation, his gift of saving grace, this gift that he can remake you new, that you can write a book called You Can't Steal My Joy After You Have Buried a Son. And by the way, she's going to have to bury a second one in the near future. Only, only by the gift of God's grace and love and mercy. Only, I, I, I can tell you about it all day long, I, I, but until you have experienced it and accepted it, until you have encountered the resurrected Lord, until you have come to know Jesus, I can say all the words in the world and you can intellectually understand, but until you buy in and you believe, and you take, uh, Kierkegaard is one who said it this way, he didn't say it's a leap of faith, it's a leap into faith. Until you and I take a leap into faith, we're going to find ourselves disconnected from the divine God. But here's what Paul is trying to say to get across. Right? If you'll just trust him with everything, if you'll trust him with everything in your life, if you'll make that the priority of your life and everything else falls secondary to that, here's what I'll say. No, it may not work by the standards of the world, but at the end of the day, when the resurrected Lord invites you and I into this resurrected place where we have been made new, we're invited in to be citizens of his kingdom. And we live as the beginning of that here and now. And so I have a question. It's a hard question. It's a hard question for me too, right? I have one question for you and I today. Um, all right, well, two questions. I'll ask the first one first. And so first question is this. Do you know Jesus? Do you know that somehow God came in the form of son and says, listen, I, I'm coming to you as one of you, for the sake of you, so you can know the depth of my love. It's not that I, I, Christ had to go to the cross to show us like, you know, how sinful we are, although we are that. It's, he said, hey, do you want to see the fullness of God's love? That there is no place you can go, no thing that can happen where God's love is not present for you. I'll go to the place of even death for you. Do you know that, Jesus? And my second question is, if you do... What might happen if you and I were to embrace these words? And like I said, this is a challenge for me too. Are we willing to say, follow me as I follow Christ? Are we willing to live and embrace these words? 
Follow me as I follow Christ. Because that's literally what Paul challenges us and invites us into a new way of life to say, by the activity of our heart and our mind and our life, follow me as I follow him. We pray with me this morning as we pray to sing. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. that we might find that you are more than enough for us, that we might give ourselves fully to you and to your love and to your grace and to your mercy. That somehow we might say in the midst of all that's going on, God, we, we don't even know what to do with some of this stuff. As Paul says this, man, it's really hard. We want to be dismissive of Paul and say, well, he's just kind of arrogant and, you know, whatever. But, but, but we think that, Father, if these words are true, Help us to let go. Help us to follow you with all that we are. Help us to be so shaped by your spirit that the fruits of the spirit might be evident in our heart and our mind and our life. And it might truly change the place that we live and work and find our life. And so, Father, help us to reflect on what it is we need to lay down or let go of to become all that you have for us. So, Lord, we, we desperately long for you to be near to us this day. We help us to answer the question, what are we following? Who are we following? And so, Lord, help us to make sure we're following you. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name.